0: This is Shivaraman again from Johns Hopkins. So why don't we continue our survey of the imaging of solid pancreatic masses by talking about our next category of big lesions, and that's pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, also known as islet cell tumors. Now, these tumors, which are composed of well-differentiated endocrine cells, used to be talked about as being either functioning or non-functioning. But I think our understanding of neuroendocrine tumors has evolved, and we now think that all of these neuroendocrine tumors are, to some extent, hormonally active. They're all secreting a little bit of hormone. But that hormone may or may not result in a clinical syndrome. And so we now categorize pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors as either being syndromic or non-syndromic, depending on on whether they produce actual laboratory or clinical findings. Now, neuroendocrine tumors are associated with a number of underlying syndromes. Von Hippel-Lindau, neurofibromatosis type 1, tuberous sclerosis, and I'd say most commonly, MEN type 1 which is associated with parathyroid lesions, neuroendocrine tumors, and of course, pituitary adenomas. So when I'm dealing with a patient who has one of these syndromes, I'm of course going to look at the pancreas very carefully, particularly in the arterial phase, and I'm really going to interrogate that patient for any evidence of a neuroendocrine tumor. But that being said, I'm increasingly seeing neuroendocrine tumors that are sporadic in patients with no underlying symptoms, no underlying syndrome. So anytime you have an arterial phase image in front of you, you've got to look at that pancreas very carefully for any evidence of an underlying lesion. Now, syndromic neuroendocrine tumors are those lesions that produce some kind of a clinically evidenced endocrinopathy. They produce hormones, and they tend to present relatively earlier as a result. So these tumors tend to be smaller because they produce symptoms early. Now, syndromic NETs tend to secrete multiple different hormones, but usually it's the one hormone that's most secreted that establishes which syndrome the patient has. Now, because these patients are symptomatic, they have an endocrinopathy, they tend to be picked up pretty early. So the vast majority of syndromic NETs are picked up when they're probably three centimeters or less in size. Now, you probably all remember the different types of syndromic NETs that you can encounter insulinomas, gastrinomas, glucagonomas, VIPomas, somatostatinomas. But I'd say for all practical purposes, the two of these that are most likely to be encountered in clinical practice are going to be insulinomas and gastrinomas. Now, insulinomas, which are the most common, overwhelmingly tend to be benign. Probably only about 10% of them are malignant, and about 10% are associated with MEN type 1. Now, insulinomas tend to be relatively small, but they have a very characteristic clinical syndrome, so-called Whipple's triad. These patients are hypoglycemic, they're symptomatic, and if you give them glucose, their symptoms are going to abate. Now, gastronomas, on the other hand, which are the most common neuroendocrine tumors associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, tend to be much more commonly malignant. 30% of these actually will present with liver metastases. Now, even though gastronomas still tend to be in the pancreas, they're often multiple and they can be extra pancreatic within the so-called gastronoma triangle. Now, gastronomas, when they're symptomatic, will often cause thickening of the stomach, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, and you're often going to see peptic ulcer disease with ulcers in relatively unusual places, post-bulbar ulcers. Now, syndromic, we've talked about syndromic NETs. Non-syndromic NETs account for the other 50% of all neuroendocrine tumors. And obviously, these patients are not symptomatic. They do not have a clinically evident endocrinopathy. Their laboratory values are going to be relatively normal. So as a result you're not gonna pick these tumors up when they're small, but rather you're gonna see much larger lesions at presentation. So we're gonna catch these lesions not because of symptoms from, an endo- from some kind of a hormone, but rather because they get huge, they cause mass effect, they metastasize, or they invade local structures. So the vast majority of non-syndromic neuroendocrine tumors average a size probably well over five centimeters, and they're much more likely to look horrible on CT. Cystic, necrotic, calcified, very aggressive in appearance. Now, neuroendocrine tumors, unlike pancreatic adenocarcinomas, tend to be very, very well circumscribed. Remember, pancreatic adenocarcinomas are poorly marginated, they're infiltrative, you often will have trouble clearly defining the borders or making a measurement. That is not going to be the case for a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. I'm always going to be able to really well delineate the margins and making a measurement is not going to be difficult. Now, one of the reasons we do arterial phase imaging for pancreatic lesions is that neuroendocrine tumors tend to be avidly enhancing on the arterial phase. They tend to be very bright, and they actually tend to be relatively vascular or hypervascular on the venous phase images as well. Now, even though they almost always are going to be more conspicuous on the arterial phase, there are some rare instances where you're going to see them more conspicuously on the venous phase images. Now, most of these are solid, relatively homogeneous lesions, but it's not uncommon to see neuroendocrine tumors that are cystic or necrotic, and so when you're dealing with a cystic lesion, you always need to look for that rim of hypervascularity, which can suggest this diagnosis. Now, unlike pancreatic adenocarcinomas, which almost always are going to obstruct the pancreatic or the biliary ducts, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors almost never do that. Even relatively large lesions, unless there's a lot of mass effect, are going to not cause much in the way of pancreatic ductal dilatation. Now, that being said, huge tumors can obstruct the duct just because it pushes on it, compresses the duct. And then Satomi Kaumoto, one of my colleagues, actually did a series a few years ago looking at small neuroendocrine tumors that did cause pancreatic ductal dilatation. And she and Dr. Ruben found that some of these small lesions were secreting serotonin and other hormones that cause fibrotic stricturing of the pancreatic ducts. Now, unlike pancreatic adenocarcinomas, neuroendocrine tumors almost never cause pancreatic atrophy, and they're pretty commonly associated with large lymph nodes, and those lymph nodes are not uncommonly going to be hypervascular. Now, I find this distinction between neuroendocrine tumors and adenocarcinoma is a very confusing one for many radiologists, particularly if you're not seeing a lot of pancreatic lesions in your practice. So I see lesions referred to us from the outside all the time with a diagnosis of pancreatic adenocarcinoma that ultimately turn out to be neuroendocrine tumors or vice versa. So remember the distinction. I think this chart really describes the key features that you need to make the differentiation between these two entities. How well circumscribed is it? Is it vascular on the arterial phase? Is it encasing and narrowing vessels? Or is it actually invading the portal venous system? Is it calcified? Are there enlarged lymph nodes? And finally, how vascular are metastases? So here's a pretty run-of-the-mill example of a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Notice how brightly enhancing this lesion is. You're never going to see a pancreatic adenocarcinoma that's this hypervascular. When I see a mass like this that's enhancing to this degree, I'm not even going to include pancreatic adenocarcinoma in my differential diagnosis. Really, that's not even a possibility. This has to be a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor or one of its common mimics, which we'll talk about soon. Now, I think it's important to remember that because of better technique, because of how good our CT scanners are, and because of our increasing inclusion of arterial phase images as part of our standard protocols, we are increasingly identifying small neuroendocrine tumors in patients with absolutely no symptoms. So it's not at all uncommon in my practice for me to pick up small neuroendocrine tumors in totally unsuspected patients that are 5, 6, 7 millimeters in size. So here's an example. Small neuroendocrine tumor, it's 5 or 6 millimeters in size sitting in the pancreatic head, would have been absolutely invisible if I just had venous phase images. If you're suspected about a pan- suspecting a pancreatic lesion, if there's any chance the patient has a neuroendocrine tumor, you've got to include arterial phase images as part of your protocol. Here's another example, very difficult if you don't have the right phases of contrast. Hypervascular, but very, very small. Notice how brightly enhancing that lesion is. It's got to be a neuroendocrine tumor or one of its common mimics. Now, typically the syndromic NETs tend to be relatively small, but most of the non-syndromic NETs that I see in my practice tend to look a lot like this. Big, aggressive, nasty. It's invading the splenic hilum. It's actually invading the splenic vein. But notice how I would never confuse this with a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Notice that vascularity. There's lots of tumor vessels within the mass. It's avidly enhancing you've got to include pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor as your first and foremost diagnosis on your differential. Now, As I mentioned before, the vast majority of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors tend to be solid. They tend to be relatively homogeneous. But that being said, we're increasingly seeing neuroendocrine tumors in our practice that are cystic or have some significant necrotic component. And all too often, I see that many radiologists have a tendency to describe anything that's cystic in the pancreas as a potential IPMN. They, they go down the standard cystic pancreatic lesion differential, IPMN, MCN, serous serocystadenoma, but they tend not to think about cystic neuroendocrine tumors. So here's an example of a small cystic lesion, which was originally described by someone at an outside hospital as a small IPMN. And that's certainly something you could think about. But notice that a rim of hypervascularity, there's this rind of enhancement around the margin of the the cyst. There's no way your run-of-the-mill IPMN is going to look like that. A pseudocyst is never going to look like that. When I see a rim of hypervascularity, solid enhancing tissue around the margins of a cystic lesion, a cystic neuroendocrine tumor has to be thought about, and this has to be worked up further. Here's another example. A mass has a solid component. It's hypervascular, but notice that large necrotic central component. Now, another feature that we're increasingly seeing with neuroendocrine tumors is calcification. Now, notice that I never mentioned calcification in my discussion of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, and that's because it doesn't happen. Unless in those rare cases where the patient has had radiation or maybe chemotherapy and you end up with some dystrophic calcifications within an adenocarcinoma, you're just not going to see pancreatic calcifications in almost any adenocarcinoma that I've seen. But when I see calcifications in a pancreatic mass, the first diagnosis I'm going to think about is, of course, going to be a neuroendocrine tumor. Now, that being said, it's important to remember that you can see calcifications with some other lesions. You see them in saracist adenomas, You can see them peripherally in patients with MCNs, and, of course, in some more rare lesions like SPEN or Hamoudi tumors. Now, gastrinomas can cause other manifestations on your CT scan. I think it's important sometimes to use those other manifestations as a clue that you're dealing with a neuroendocrine tumor. In this example, there's a really subtle lesion in the pancreatic body. It's delineated by the arrow in that bottom image. And I've got to say, it's really hard. That was hard to see on any phase of imaging, whether it was arterial or venous, and we had to look really hard to find it. But in this example, look at that stomach. Look at how there's all that fold thickening that's involving the proximal and mid aspect of the stomach, and that fold thickening is markedly hypervascular. When I see that pattern, I'm automatically going to be thinking about Zollinger-Ellison syndrome and I'm going to look really carefully for a gastronoma somewhere, whether it's in the pancreas or elsewhere in the gastronoma triangle. Now, another feature that can help distinguish pancreatic adenocarcinoma from a neuroendocrine tumor is the pattern of venous involvement. Now, as I mentioned earlier, pancreatic adenocarcinomas will tend to encase the portal vein, the SMV, and the splenic vein. They're going to encase, narrow, and ultimately occlude those vessels. Pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors don't do that. They have a special predisposition to actually invading the portomesenteric venous structures. In this example, notice how there's a neuroendocrine tumor that's actually invaded the splenic vein. You're never going to see a pancreatic adenocarcinoma do that. And when I see this finding, the primary diagnosis has to be a neuroendocrine tumor. Here's another great example large mass relatively hypervascular, it's enhancing, and there's tumor thrombus that's hypervascular throughout the portal mesenteric venous system, best seen on that MIP image. Notice all that streaky hypervascularity. That's gotta be a neuroendocrine tumor with tumor thrombus. Now, just as the primary pancreatic mass is usually gonna be hypervascular, metastases from a neuroendocrine tumor are also gonna tend to be relatively hypervascular. Here's an example where a large mass in the liver looks just like the primary mass in the pancreas. They're hypervascular, there's lots of neovascularity, and you can see all that little, all those little tumor vessels within each of those two lesions on the vascular map. And here's another example. Multiple hypervascular lesions throughout the pancreas. Now, this is another reason why it's so important to have dual-phase imaging when you're, when you're imaging patients with a suspected pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Even if it's a huge mass that you can see in the venous phase images, you may not be able to see those small liver metastases if you don't have a good arterial phase. So take it from me. Always do dual phase arterial and venous phase imaging anytime you have a suspected pancreatic mass. Now, not everything that looks like a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor is necessarily a pancreatic NET. There are some other entities that can mimic a neuroendocrine tumor on CT. These include things like pancreatic metastases, splenules, GIST tumors, solid serocystadenomas, and some extra pancreatic lesions, things like paragangliomas, etc., etc. Now, I'd say the most important of these, and probably the thing I see most often in my practice that's really confusing, are pancreatic metastases. Now, METs to the pancreas account for only about 2 to 4% of all pancreatic masses. But I'd say the most common of these that I see in my practice by far, probably by a factor of 10 or 20 to 1, is going to be metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Now, metastatic renal cell carcinoma can look for all the world just like a neuroendocrine tumor hypervascular, solid, homogeneous, and in fact, without the right history, without knowing that the patient has had a history of renal cell carcinoma, it is indistinguishable from a neuroendocrine tumor. Now, this can be quite confusing because the patient may not come to you with a known history of RCC. These patients will often have metastases go to the pancreas years after their initial presentation. In fact, I just saw a case a couple of days ago where we had a metastasis to the pancreas from a renal cell, and the patient had undergone Nephrectomy, I think, 15 years ago, sometime in the late 90s. So even if the patient has has no recent history of RCC, you see a hypervascular mass in the pancreas. You've got to go into the history. You've got to look up any history of a prior partial nephrectomy. You've got to look to see if the kidney is still there, and if there's any hint that the patient has had a history of renal cell carcinoma, you've got to mention this in your differential diagnosis. Now, renal cell carcinoma is a somewhat unique metastasis in terms of its treatment. Our surgeons are increasingly, are increasingly willing to surgically resect isolated metastases to the pancreas, provided that there's no metastatic disease elsewhere. So here's a, great, here's a couple of great examples. In both of these cases, the patient has had nephrectomies. They have clear history of renal cell carcinoma. In the example on the right, there's a hypervascular mass in the pancreatic head. It looks just like any of the neuroendocrine tumors I showed you earlier. And the example on the bottom part of the screen is much more dramatic innumerable hypervascular masses filling up and expanding the pancreas. Now, in both of these cases, if you didn't have the history, I think it would be more than justifiable to say that these are almost certainly gonna be pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. But if I have a history of renal cell carcinoma, I'm always gonna list, I'm always, almost always gonna list renal cell carcinoma as the first entity on my differential diagnosis. Now, another entity that I think is confusing, and in my experience, I've seen it lead to some disastrous clinical consequences, is an intrapancreatic splenule. Now, you may think that it's not that easy to you know, mistake an intrapancreatic splenule for a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, but believe me, I've seen it happen. And the second most common location for an accessory spleen is actually going to be within the tail of the pancreas. And believe me, it is extraordinarily easy to confuse a neuroendocrine tumor and an intrapancreatic splenule, particularly if you don't have multi-phase imaging. But there are a few clues, I think, that ha- should help you make this distinction. First of all, Intrapancreatic splenials should have identical enhancement to the spleen on every phase of imaging, and that's one of the reasons why having multi-phase technique is so important. If it looks like the spleen on both the arterial and the venous phase, you see that characteristic tiger stripe appearance on the arterial phase, then you're just dealing with a splenial. You're not dealing with a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Secondly. A neuroendocrine tumor, our pancreatic, intrapancreatic splenial should never be more than three centimeters medial to the pancreatic tail. So if you see something more medial than that, then it's almost always going to be a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, whereas if it's in that more lateral three centimeters, you've at least got to think about the possibility of a splenial. So nowadays, I'm very, very cognizant of this potential mistake. Anytime I see a lesion in the tail and I'm not absolutely sure that I'm not dealing with a splenial. I'm going to recommend that the patient get a Technetium 99M sulfur colloid or heat denatured RBC scan just to make absolutely certain. Believe me, getting undergoing a distal pancreatectomy is a really big procedure. So if there's any hint at all that you could be dealing with a benign procedure or benign lesion, you owe it to the patient to get another study just to confirm that it really is a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. So here are two examples. In the example on the top, that actually did turn... Well, in both examples, these turned out to be intrapancreatic splenules or peripancreatic splenules. In the example on the upper part of the screen, we were able to prospectively suggest that this was merely a splenial, and notice how it has that enhancement that very much mimics the spleen. Unfortunately, in the example on the bottom part of the screen, this patient was not prospectively thought to have a splenial, but this was thought to be a neuroendocrine tumor, and the patient unfortunately underwent a distal pancreatectomy. Try to avoid this mistake. Always think about an intrapancreatic splenule in your differential diagnosis. And if you're not certain, if you can't say with a high degree of certitude that it's a neuroendocrine tumor, don't feel at all ashamed to go on to another study. Now, there are a few other less common lesions that I've seen mimic pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Now, these other lesions tend to be lesions that are going to come out anyway. Patients are going to undergo a Whipple procedure, so it doesn't really matter that you're not able to make the diagnosis prospectively. We've seen a few solid serous cystadenomas that, for all the world, look just like a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. They're hypervascular, they're solid, they often can have some calcification, they may have a central scar, and these are solid variants of our typical serous cystadenoma, our serous cystadenomas that I think we're all familiar with. But because they're solid, they look just like neuroendocrine tumors, and I got to be honest, it is almost impossible to, to distinguish a neuroendocrine tumor from a solid serous cystadenoma on imaging we've seen a few peripancreatic gist tumors. Now, these gist tumors arise from the duodenum rather than the pancreatic head, and so that should be one clue. But particularly when they get large, they can be very hypervascular, and it can be tough to say whether it's actually arising from the pancreas or arising from the duodenum. But again, it doesn't matter. Peripancreatic gists are going to come out surgically. Patients are going to undergo a Whipple procedure. So it doesn't matter that you can't really distinguish this from a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. But if you really want to be good, you want to try to distinguish it prospectively, you want to identify that fat plane between the mass and the adjacent pancreatic head. And then finally, we've seen quite a few peripancreatic paragangliomas. These are primary retroperitoneal masses that can abut the duodenum, abut the pancreatic head, and can very much look like a primary pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Here are a couple of examples. In the first example, big heterogeneous hypervascular mass that Looks just like a lot of the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors we saw earlier. Could that be a big, non-syndromic NET? Certainly. Another example on the bottom of the screen. Hypervascular mass, very homogeneous, avidly enhancing. Certainly looks just like a lot of the NETs we talked about earlier. But in both of these examples, these turned out to be extra pancreatic or peripancreatic paragangliomas. Anytime you see a big hypervascular mass, you've got to make sure that it's actually intrapancreatic. Look for that fat plane. See if you can clearly delineate that it's within the pancreas rather than rising from the duodenum or the extra pancreatic, extra duodenal retroperitoneum. But even if you don't, it's probably not the worst thing in the world. These are surgical lesions. Patients need to have them surgically resected. So when you're dealing with pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, I think the first thing to remember is you really want to make sure that you're not misdiagnosing a splenule as in any team. Otherwise, I think that even if you don't make these other diagnoses prospectively, it doesn't matter. As long as you're at least diagnosing them with an NET, these patients are going to get the right treatment, and that's the surgical procedure. Making an accurate preoperative diagnosis when it comes to these less common mimics of neuroendocrine tumors is really not that important in the long run. So in summary, I hope I've given you all a sense for how important it is to have the right CT protocols in place. You know, at Hopkins, we are really strong believers that you need a dual-phase technique any time you're dealing with a suspected pancreatic mass, whether it's a suspected adenocarcinoma or a neuroendocrine tumor. And I really think that it's mandatory and now the standard of care. Secondly, when you're dealing with pancreatic adenocarcinomas, I think you have to have a good sense for the role of CT in terms of both diagnosis and staging. Our role doesn't just end with identifying the tumor. We have to provide our clinicians with the information that they need to determine whether a patient is resectable or not. Is there metastatic disease? Is there vascular involvement? And if so, is the patient resectable, borderline resectable, or unresectable? And of course, you've got to be thinking about those other mimics, especially lymphoma and unusual forms of pancreatitis. Now, when it comes to neuroendocrine tumors, hopefully I've given you a sense for how important the arterial phase images are. We're increasingly seeing these lesions as sporadic asymptomatic sporadic asymptomatic patients. And so anytime you have an arterial phase as part of your study, you have to make it a point to look at the pancreas carefully and identify any subtle hypervascular lesions. So thanks then. Until the next time. See you later. Bye.